You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. heard Jordan Peele of Key and Peele and Get Out fame has a new movie. It's called Us. Apparently, it's an allegory about the self-destruction of American society, which sounds intriguing to me. I don't know if you've heard of the movie and plan to see it. It sounds intriguing, but I don't think I am watching it. It's a horror film, and I don't think I can take it like I used to, maybe at a different time. But this movie, along with the whole business of horror flicks, has got me thinking recently about the strange way our culture tends to relate to death. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. We either pay loads of money... To pretend that we're not all one day going to die. Or we pay loads of money to eat popcorn and watch people pretend to die. What's going on with that? In other words, we're either deeply uncomfortable with death. Avoid thinking about it at all costs. Or we turn death and even the threat of death entertainment, even glamorizing it, which I think might be its own form of avoidance also. But see, all that stands in sharp contrast to the way that the Christian faith has talked about death for 2,000 years, not with avoidance, not with glamorizing horror, but rather with hope. Because of the promise of heaven beyond death. And with gratitude because of one particular death. Namely the death of Jesus Christ. Today's passage actually merges both of those themes. The hope of heaven and the death of Jesus. In fact, I think it provides a life-changing answer to the all-important question that we're going to explore over the next three weeks from now until Easter. Why did Jesus come to die? And here's today's answer to the question. Why did Jesus come to die? Jesus died so that we may live together with him in heaven comes from verse 10 of today's passage, where it says this, He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Jesus died so that those who trust in Him, who breathe their last on earth, will breathe their next in heaven. Jesus died so that He could say to the repentant thief dying next to him on another cross, and so that he might also say to all those who are united to him, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Jesus died so that the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 could describe death for followers of Christ as departing and being with Christ. And as he said in 2 Corinthians 5, describing death as being away from the body, yet at home with the Lord. Jesus died so that all those who have not yet died and who are still alive when he returns one day, will join together those already in heaven, and together we will see him face to face and live together with him in glory. Why did Jesus come to die? Jesus came and Jesus died so that we may live together with him in heaven. And that's pretty much it. That's the answer to the question tonight. We could stop there. I imagine you might want to hear a little bit more. I'll keep going. But this is such a a life-altering truth, isn't it? To, To dare to believe that for those in Christ, that after death, that somehow it actually gets better. Infinitely better. To to actually to dare to believe that, it's such a game changer in terms of how you face death, in terms of how you live your life day after day, that we really want to make sure that this claim is grounded in rock-solid truth rather than just in wishful thinking, don't we? We really want to know that it's true. So let's dig in further. Let's look at the whole passage. It's one of these paragraphs in the closing section of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, which was part of ancient Greece in the northern region there. I want to start by quickly summarizing five truths that we discover in this passage. Five truths. Number one, Jesus is coming back. According to the Bible, after his resurrection, after 33 years on Earth, Jesus ascended into heaven, which is where he is today. Jesus is personally present with us, even here very now, spiritually, by the Holy Spirit, but he's not physically present with us, but one day he will be physically here again. That's what verse 4 is referring to there when it says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you. This day, that's the day of Christ's return. See, Jesus hasn't forgotten about you. Jesus isn't going to leave our world broken and wounded. Not forever. He's coming back. That's truth number one. Number two, when he comes back, Jesus will bring with him judgment and salvation. Just before our passage in verse three, not printed in the bulletin, Paul says that on the day of the Lord, destruction will come. You might have noticed verse nine refers to the wrath of God. The Bible tells us that this is what our sins justly deserve. It's not an easy thing to hear. The day of Jesus' return will be a terrible day of judgment for many. 
But for those who bank their lives on Jesus, that day will be instead a day of salvation. You see, this is how it works. According to the Bible, when Jesus on the cross died, do you know what he did? He not only suffered physically, not only died physically, but he suffered the wrath of God in our place, the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin and our selfishness. In other words, 2,000 years ago, Jesus jumped into your story. And he lived out your future day of judgment, suffering all that you deserved to suffer on that day. Last week, I read about a man who served some time, committed a crime, and was sentenced to some years in prison, served his time, and then walked a free man 13 years ago. But now, apparently, because of a glitch in the system, the court is saying that he needs to go back. He owes 16 more months. You know, God won't do that to you or to me. On the cross, justice was served. On the cross, justice was fully satisfied. And God won't ever come back asking for you to serve more time. It's finished. It's done because of what Jesus suffered in your place. Jesus paid it all, and that's why in verse 9, it says this, of those who have accepted this gift of grace from Christ, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. No, not anymore. Jesus paid it all, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, by his death in our place, removed the deadliness of death and instead made death the doorway to heaven. Could it really be true? And heaven, in fact, is what's on Paul's mind here when he says in verse 5, you are all children of the light and children of the day. And when he says in verse 8, we belong to that day. What's the day? What's the light that he's referring to? It's the eternal day, the light of heaven. When Jesus returns... He's going to bring heaven with him. Number three, Jesus' return is unpredictable, but it should not be a surprise. Jesus' return is unpredictable, but it should not be a surprise. You see, verse four tells us plainly that this day should not surprise you like a thief. Now listen, when the Bible compares Jesus to a thief in the night, it's a little tricky. It's not saying that Jesus is coming to steal your junk. It's not what it means. Jesus is like a thief in this one sense, this one respect. Nobody knows when he's going to arrive. But the point of verse 4 is that his arrival may be unpredictable, don't know when it's going to happen, but it shouldn't be a surprise. It should not catch you off guard. Instead, you should be spiritually ready, watchful for the return of Christ. 
Verse 6, so then let us not be like others who are spiritually asleep, but let us be awake and sober. What does that mean? What does that mean to be spiritually awake waiting for Christ's return? I mean, does it mean that we're to spend our lives gazing out the windows, looking up at the clouds? Oh, there he is. No, 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 that's a bird, right? What does this mean to be awake and watchful? For Christ's return. Well, number four, this passage tells us that until Jesus arrives, even when it's dark outside, live like it's day. Recently, I told my kids that we're going swimming the next day. It's been a long winter. They're eager to see spring finally arrive, and so that proposal, let's hit the swimming pool tomorrow, was met with great jubilation, as you can imagine. Kids excited, their faces lit up immediately, and they were looking forward to this treat the next day. And in fact, my son was so excited that that evening, before going to bed, he came up to me and he said, "Uh, Daddy, I know you're probably going to say no, you know, which is how he is these days prefacing just about every request he's making to me. It's a strange thing. Pray for my parenting, maybe. I said, Daddy, I know you're probably going to say no, but can I wear my swim goggles to sleep? I said no. Actually, I almost wanted to say yes just to see those rings around his eyes for a whole week afterwards, right? But you know, my boy was doing something right. You know what he was doing? He was strapping on, he was wanting to strap on a piece of tomorrow on his face. He's living today like he's already in tomorrow's pool, right? He was only doing what our passage is telling us to do. That every day, as we wait to live with one foot already in tomorrow's swimming pool. Verse 5, you are all children of the light, the coming light. You are all children of the day. We belong to that day. You see, we live in dark days, but the gospel calls us to live like the sun has already risen. So don't be morally and spiritually asleep, living in darkness, rather. Be awake and sober. Get out of your spiritual pajamas and get into your jeans, your daytime clothes, or your pencil skirts, or your khakis, or your yoga pants, whatever it is for you. Put them on, so to speak. And live like it's day. Like that day has already arrived. What does this daytime living, this daytime living look like? We're told in verse 8, we belong to the day, so let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a, as a helmet. Live anticipating heaven's arrival. And so, number five, we 
are confident, therefore, that we belong to the day of heaven. Why? Because Jesus died for us. In other words, how do we know that this hope for heaven isn't going to disappoint us? It's an important question, isn't it? Because who wants to wait for something that's not going to come around? Who wants to be proven to be a fool? We're told in verse 10, this pivotal verse, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're still alive or already dead when He returns, so that we may live together with Him in heaven. You see, your confidence for the future is grounded in the past. Jesus' past. How can I be confident that my future is secure? Jesus died for you. You say, look, it's, it's looking dark out there. And if I'm honest, it's often looking dark in here. How can I be sure that the sun's going to rise? Jesus died. Don't you know? Jesus died and dealt with your sin. Jesus died, satisfied God's Justice. Jesus died and paid down your debt. Jesus died and absorbed God's wrath for you that he might give his salvation to you. Jesus died and defanged death. Jesus died and shared his father with you and gave you a place in his home. Jesus died and earned your way to heaven. Hallelujah. And you hear this perhaps and you say, well, that sounds Appealing, it sounds good, I think, but what's so good about heaven? What is it? What is so good about heaven? What's so special about living together with Jesus forever? And that's an important question. Of course it is. Because if Jesus' death is no big deal, if heaven isn't the best imaginable deal. So we got to know, what's the big deal about heaven? Beloved, heaven is a world of love. To use the words of Jonathan Edwards, a flawed man, but one who wrote profoundly as a theologian about the topic of heaven. Yes, heaven is a place of unimaginable perfection. You might be familiar with that idea. But I think oftentimes we associate the idea of perfection with something cold, minimal, maybe even sterile. Perfection, right? Shiny things that you can't touch or expensive things that belong to somebody else. But every corner of heaven, every corner of heaven is saturated with God's presence and God is love. An infinite fountain of love. A full and overflowing and inexhaustible fountain of love. An unchangeable and eternal source of love. Heaven, therefore, is a world of love, of perfect love. 
It pulsates with the warmth and the affection and the beauty and the generosity of God. And the most expensive thing in heaven, the very face of Jesus will belong to you. Your first second's glance at the radiance of Jesus will forever extinguish every ounce of sin and sorrow from your soul. In heaven, there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more fear, no more shame. And that will be because of just one second's glance at Jesus' faith. And so can you imagine what an eternity of gazes upon his countenance might do to you? And speaking of what we will see, in heaven our eyes will be immensely superior to what they are even now which will be a much-needed thing because the light of heaven will be immensely different from the kind of light that we experience now from the light of the sun, seeing, as we will, colors that we've never yet seen, stimulating sensations and delights that we've never felt. You may have seen a video online of a 60-something-year-old man who, after seeing only in shades of gray for his entire life because of some kind of a vision disorder that he had, this moment when he puts on corrective glasses, some special kind of lens that enables him to see color for the very first time, a poignant moment. You see his hands begin to tremble and, and even reach out in, in front of him almost as if to, to try to touch the colors that he's now seeing. With tears streaming down his face and at one point he begins to giggle even with childlike delight. Likewise, in heaven we will see as if for the very first time, now seen with new eyes, seen new light, and I think we will weep, and we will laugh, and all of our seeing will ultimately will have God for its object, perceiving what no earthly eye has ever seen of his glory. And not only will our, our seeing be eternally new, but so also our hearing of sounds and of songs, of music, as we're enabled to hear thousands of intervals all at once, harmonies that we presently can't perceive. And even the very sweetness of the voice of Jesus calling your name. As the Spirit of God pours into our souls through our ears an inexpressible and inconceivable happiness. And speaking of happiness, you better believe that heaven is a world of joy 
too. Surely this joy will be, at least in part, from the great reunion we'll all enjoy with those in Christ who have previously died. Those of you today suffering from loss of loved ones, this should come to you as great comfort. Surely this joy will be eternally unleashed as we're finally freed from all that presently handcuffs our hearts. The fears, the addictions, the insecurities. Imagine it, no more living on edge, anxiously wondering who or what lurks in the shadows, whether literally or figuratively, who might be a threat. No more bracing yourself for daily microaggressions. No more need to compulsively check the locks on the door. Natural extroverts who, after a traumatic experience as a child, now folded inward to protect themselves, will one day be gregarious and socially free. Heaven will offer durable, Security that finally allows you to exhale, to bask in perfect security and in perfect vulnerability simultaneously at last. Mix together vulnerability and security and joy and what do you get? You better believe that heaven is going to be a world of dancing too. The other day I was watching with my kids a, a clip of The Wiz, a 1978 remake of The Wizard of Oz, and we're watching one of the final scenes, a climactic scene, when the Wicked Witch of the West is finally overthrown, and the enslaved Winkies are finally set free, and everyone crowds in a room together, and they erupt in a loud cheer, and they begin to dance. Dorothy, played wonderfully by Diana Ross, is strutting across the room, jumping on top of tables, throwing up her arms in confident triumph, dancing and dancing as the Winkies twirl about in free abandon. And they're all singing these words that I imagine might be something like we sing in heaven one day. Everybody's glad because our silent Fears and dread is gone. Freedom, you see, has got our hearts singing so joyfully. Just look about. You owe it to yourself to check it out. Can't you feel a brand new day? Can't you feel a brand new day? Listen, in heaven, we're all going to be Diana Ross. Strutting about, throwing up our arms. And I'm looking forward to seeing some of you, some of you who today can barely get your foot to tap along with the music when it plays, dancing on top of tables. You're going to be there next to me on that brand new day. 
And yet even this joy you see is not just a joy that we'll experience for all of eternity, but it'll be a joy that's ever increasing with each passing moment in heaven. Because you see that joy is rooted not in ourselves, but rather in our experience of God. Which means that with each passing moment, there's more and more of God to be discovered, more of His mercies and glories to be seen, more of His manifold character to be known. That each time and each corner that we turn and we see more of God, it fills our hearts with new delight. Not an old recycled joy, but a new joy, something we've never seen of God and of His glory. And as long as it's true that you'll never get to the bottom of our God, our infinite, eternal God, so also it'll be true that heaven isn't just a word, world of eternal joy. Heaven is a world of ever-increasing joy, eternally ever-increasing joy. And the nature of this world of love is that you won't just want to hoard it for yourself. You'll want everyone else around you to experience it, not just like you do, but even more than you do. Because so great will your heart be a heart of generosity, not hoarding things for yourself, but wanting to give to one another. Can you imagine that? To have that kind of humility. Which means, of course, not just debasing yourself, but rather lifting your eyes off yourself. To see another. To have your gaze fixed upon the joys and the needs and the desires of those around you. Imagine being that freed of pride. Imagine being that freed of every hint of a competitive spirit and of envy. And to have only pouring out like a fountain from your heart superlative generosity. What would it be like to be like that. My wife and I, we often joke about how we're so competitive that we have no problem at all beating our kids in games. I know Tom's like that, right? No problem. We call it education, right? This is how life works. This is how the world is. But you know, the other day I was shooting Nerf hoops with my son, in the basement. And he beat me. He beat me. But in that moment, and just for a moment, I was happy for him. And I was happy because I saw how happy he was. And it was my joy to see his joy. And I know that's just a little taste of heaven. To find your happiness bound up in the happiness of someone else, that when someone goes around the corner and they say, hey, here's a piece of God's glory that I've never seen and you've never seen it before, you're glad for them. And you're praising God with them and for them and you're excited for all that those around you know of God even better than yourself. So humble is your heart, so giving is your heart, so sacrificial is your heart, so Generous is your heart. This and so much more, and we could go on and on and on. This and eternally more is what it means that we will live together with Jesus in heaven. This day for which he died. This day which he promises to bring with him when he returns. And so the apostle says, in light of these truths, in light of this coming day, it might be nighttime now. 
But you belong to the coming daylight. So get out of your pajamas and hop into your jeans and live even now like it's tomorrow. It's dark outside. I know it is. And it's dark in here too. But get your swim goggles on because we're headed to the pool tomorrow. And it's going to be a brand new day. So start practicing the humility of heaven. Love your Neighbors, live in a world of love now. Fight for eternal and ever-increasing joy in God. Celebrate little foretastes of the freedom of heaven. Dance, will you dance? And offer hope to a, a world that's drowning in hopelessness and in darkness. And let your lives in your church and in your workplace and on your street blocks, let your lives be a sign and a symbol of the coming future for those who would put their trust in Christ. This darkness we live in is not how it's always going to be. Not forever. Let the world know that. That death has an expiration date. That cancer has an expiration date. That poverty has an expiration date. That envy has an expiration date. Things are terribly broken now, but the brokenness is temporary. So encourage one another, says Paul in verse 11. Build one another up. Remind each other daily. These things about heaven are true. They're true. And encourage even those, including some of you here today, that haven't yet tasted this fountain of Christ's love personally. For you to know that this heaven is something that God promises you if you would simply put your trust in Him today. Beloved, encourage one another. You need to because it's dark out there, isn't it? It's dark in here. But one day, someday, the night will turn to light. And the dark will turn to day. It's already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Have you seen its light? Do you want to? Friends, Jesus died. Jesus died so that we may live together with him. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.